This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for April 10th, 2022 with Darren Perry. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome you. Our lesson today will draw from Exodus 14 through 17 in the Hebrew Bible. If you're interested in checking out our previous lessons, we've been doing this for two years now, we were just talking about, and they are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com. At our website, you can, of course, also find the entire run of the journal's scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. Today's lesson will be added to that collection of Latter-day Saint thought by the end of the day, and we're also excited that our latest issue of the journal is uh, is in the mail and will also be um, available online this week as well. Dialogue, of course, has been around a lot longer than two years, uh, 54, almost 55. Uh, in the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, my faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. Find out more about how you can help to create a fund that secures the work and vision of dialogue at givetodialogue.com. For today's gospel study lesson, if you're with us live on Zoom, feel free to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We will also do our best to follow along um, with any comments that show up on Facebook where we are also live. Darren Perry is the former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. He currently serves on the board of directors for the American West Heritage Center in Wellsville, Utah, the Utah State Museum Board, the Community Advisory Board for the Huntsman Cancer Institute, the Utah Humanities Board, and the PBS Utah Board of Directors. He attended the University of Utah and Weber State University, receiving a BA in secondary education with an emphasis in history. Darren is the author of The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History, and teaches Native American history at Utah State University. His passions in life are his wife, Melody, seven children and 14 grandchildren, and his tribal family. He has dedicated his life to making sure that those who have gone before are not forgotten. Our usual disclaimer, like with any Latter-day Saint, Scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Edwin Wilde. Edwin is a sixth-generation sheep herder born in Colville, Utah, at the building that is currently being used as the library. He was raised in Croydon, Utah, in a family of six children as number five of six, he is married to Holly, and they are the parents of eight children. Uh, and he and Darren go back a ways um, uh, and was one of his former gospel doctrine teachers. So uh, we'll begin with music. Christ the Lord is Risen Today, performed by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Our Father in Heaven. <clears throat> We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather. And we pray that by thy mighty hand that thou will gather us. Both in mind and body and spirit and as a community. Be with us here this day, we invite you. And to send thine angels round about that we might 
receive instruction from heaven and the guiding light that we need so badly in our lives. This we pray, and we pray for a blessing upon Darren as, as he prepares to, to give his lesson. That thy voice shall speak through him, and that all who are here may be able to hear it. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for having me today. I, I come to you um, from the beautiful Cache Valley. I live in Avon, Utah, and um, I'm surrounded by mountains, and it's the most beautiful sight you've seen. I, I get up every day, and I look out and look at the mountains, and it reminds me of the teaching of my Shoshone people and how we honored uh, the land and the creator. And so um, I'm honored to be here. Before I get started, though, I, I need to confess something that uh, I have spent almost my entire life not having studied the Old Testament. Uh, one of my favorite movies, though, of all time was The Ten Commandments. And I would often joke that I didn't want to read the book because it would mess up a good movie. And so uh, don't get me wrong, though. Scripture study has always played an important role in my life. But I probably spent 90% of my time in the Book of Mormon, mainly because of my uh, Native American heritage and my Lamanite status. Um, what I can say now, though, is that for the first time in my life, I have immersed myself in the study of the Old Testament, uh, especially as it has to do with the old Come Follow Me lessons. I'm grateful for the opportunity that uh, you guys have given me to share some of my thoughts today. And some of the things that I've learned on this journey, uh, the lesson today comes from Exodus 14, 15, 16, and 17. And it's entitled, Stand Still and See the Salvation of the Lord. Uh, they should have named it, Stand Still and See the Patience of the Lord. And so as I share some of my personal thoughts on chapter 14, maybe I want you to ponder uh, just a question or two. Uh, has God ever delivered you from a seemingly impossible trial? Maybe not Red Sea-worthy trial, but a, a trial of any size that sometimes brings us to our knees. You know, to me, the Old Testament was always so hard to read, uh, except for, you know, the creation and some of the stories. But recently, I began to look at words and phrases symbolically, especially in chapters uh, 14 through 17, which are full of uh, symbolism. I believe Pharaoh can be symbolically a representative of Satan. And like Satan, Pharaoh does not keep his promise to the Israelites and leads his army in, into the wilderness in pursuit of Moses and his people. Like Pharaoh, Satan and his followers never, ever keep their word 
Satan is always relentless in trying uh, to overcome us and to place us in bondage. Until the Savior comes again, there will always be uh, opposition in all things. I believe trials and hardships can make us stronger and help us to grow in all aspects of our lives. Quite often, and especially in my life, it seems like just when I overcome one trial, another one seems to be at my door. Uh, four years ago, I went in for just a, a normal checkup and a blood test showed that I had cancer, a really aggressive form of cancer that hadn't been caught early. Uh, during those treatments, I uh, found out that I had a heart defect, a uh, defective aortic valve. And so that was going to require major surgery at some time down the road. And uh, I often think of those trials in my life and, and how I was blessed through those trials. I think of Sagwich, my, the chief of the Shoshones in the mid-19th century, and I think about the trials that he had as the saints came to the valley, and then the saints came to the Cache Valley, and then encountering the largest massacre of natives in the history of our country, and what kind of a trial that would have been, and then uh, ending up joining the church. Uh, the same church from the people that perpetrated the massacre. So, you know, we all have these trials that we go through, and, and but how we navigate those, and I, I've always said how we deal with trials and those things in our life will determine our character and who we become. But what I love about the scriptures is that uh, the absolute truth that the Lord is in every instance uh, in our lives and he has more power than Satan will ever have. And at the end, Satan will ultimately be defeated. I also find symbolism in the fact that Pharaoh and Satan and their armies were defeated by the waters of the Red Sea, which I think symbolically you could uh, think of those waters as the waters of baptism, through which if we all repent, we can become clean and free from bondage and free from past sins. In, in the lesson, it talked about DNC uh, 8, 2 through 3, which says, Behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. And then the verse 3 gets to the crux of why we're here today. Now behold, the spirit of this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Because of who we are and what we've been given, we've been all been given this gift of inspiration and revelation, which in the end uh, is going to make all the difference in the world. Moses did his work through inspiration and revelation. What does this tell us, though, about how we can be delivered from our trials? Are we asking for the Lord's help in our times of need? And are we able to receive 
his revealed will when we need it the most. And sometimes maybe he will answer us in a way that uh, we did not expect. Uh, I know many times I, I pray for a direct answer. And sometimes it's answered in the way I want it to be, and sometimes it's not. It's answered in a different way. Uh, I've always believed that as faithful disciples, we have the ability to receive personal revelation that is tailored just to us. One of my favorite scriptures, and it was a scripture I shared when I left for a mission to England a long time ago, was one that I'll paraphrase, First Nephi 3.7, that says, The Lord will always prepare a way for us to accomplish the things that he commands us. As we will learn now, the Lord is always in the details of our lives, and he will never abandon us. So in chapter 14, the children of Israel have departed and are now camped at the shores of the Red Sea. Looking back and thinking about everything they'd gone through to this point, uh, they had a front row seat to the miracles that Moses had performed for the benefit of Pharaoh. And yet, the depth of their conversion and faith in Jehovah, as well as their loyalty to Moses, were still very fragile in the hearts and minds of these liberated slaves. Here they're camped by the Red Sea with nowhere to go, and they see the armies closing in. In verse 11 and 12, it says, And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore, why hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we did tell thee in Egypt? I'm smiling because I can just hear him. Didn't we tell you that this is going to happen? Saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than it would be for us to die in the wilderness. I am so grateful to know that the Lord is willing to give us many, many witnesses of his power and love for us in order to enable us to learn and progress and completely get committed to the gospel. But it doesn't happen just overnight. So how did Moses respond to the the complaining? In verse 13 and 14, it says, Moses said unto this people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall shew you today. For the Egyptians ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. The Lord then told Moses to raise up his hand, And he divided the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went through on dry ground through the midst of the sea. As I saw that in the movies as a young boy, I can just imagine the looks on some of their faces 
and the feelings as their heart as they followed this prophet who they probably didn't really believe in into this divided sea on dry ground not slippery or muddy but on dry ground with threatening walls of water on both sides i can imagine that uh, many were frightened but i want to believe that there were many more who were in awe of this marvelous miracle that had been performed in their behalf. Also symbolic to me was the fact that the Israelites passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. Haven't we been taught our whole lives as Latter-day Saints that when we follow the teachings of an inspired prophet, we too will always be on solid, dry ground. As a recipient of many miracles and blessings in my own life, this was always, as I received those blessings, a a time of reflection and rejoicing and one of gratitude. And and so it was as we end 14 and go into 15, uh, it was with the Israelites. Uh, I asked Ed maybe to share just some insights on chapter 14 that, uh, you know, I miss because I, I miss everything, but uh, Ed, would you like to just comment on, on chapter 14 a little bit? Sure. Um, one recurring theme throughout this lesson that, that jumped out to me was th- this reality that when, when the children of Israel are in Egypt, they're under tyranny and, and it's oppressive, but leaving tyranny and going out into the wilderness isn't always better. And once you're out there, sometimes you realize it's worse. Because at least when you're under tyranny, you've got some semblance of order. And and so what we're, we're seeing there, it, when they're crying, you know, why did you bring us out? Because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt? Is, is that the problem? It, it's, it's interesting because this reality of like earlier... They were the Lord's people. He's going to guide us. Yay, we're awesome. We're going to leave the dirty Egyptians behind. They're wicked. And then they get out there, and all of a sudden, the reality of what that means of actually following God descends upon them. And and it's reflected in God's reply to Moses. Why are you crying to me? I'm here. You know that I'm here. I'm I'm here all the time. It's the faith of the uh, the children of Israel that's lacking. Tell them to go forward. Tell them to stop whining about this still, because it's going to be hard, and it's going to get worse. Yeah, the grass is always greener on the other side. Yeah, it's going to get worse, and you're going to have to deal with the worst, because even though I lead you out of of Egypt and the tyranny that's there, once we get out there, you're going to have to establish your own order. And, And God doesn't it's interesting throughout this whole lesson, God doesn't always just immediately provide answers for every problem that arises. Instead, the people among themselves have to create peace and order. And when they don't, they find themselves in, you know, neck deep and in problems. And so that's the thing out of, out of chapter 14 that, that jumped out to me. Well, thank you for that. Any other comments, Rebecca, you could, have anything to add to that? Um, yeah, so, you know, I think that idea that, um, 
you know, we look around the world today and sometimes people choose tyranny, right? That, uh, and that it provides some, you know, semblance of order or, um, you know, something they can wrap their heads around. Um, uh, and I, and I've been thinking too, as I was reading, um, reading these chapters that there's, there's kind of different kinds of liberation. So there's a liberation from slavery, you know, uh, and we think we often think of that as um, as what freedom is, but uh, but that's only one part of freedom, and the other part of freedom is um, is kind of meeting these basic needs and um, and sustaining freedom. So, what does that look like? And through these chapters, we really see um, God taking care of His people in both ways. Um, and that, um, and that the freedom he's providing them is not just the freedom of liberation, but also the freedom of this sustaining way of life and of living. And they're called on to kind of practice, practice that way. So that's what I'm thinking about. Good. And, and that freedom brings about responsibility. Now, you know, they were given three square meals a day. Not sure how nutritious they were, but at least they had food and water in Egypt. But now it's their responsibility to to figure out a way forward. And and in chapter fifteen we see uh, in the early part of chapter fifteen we see the children of Israel singing a song of praise. The people were praising the Lord for saving them from the Pharaoh's army. Uh, much like we do when we receive a blessing or a huge burden has been lifted off our shoulders, that euphoria that we feel right after. Uh, it's spent in time rejoicing and showing gratitude. It's always easy to show gratitude during those times. And the children of Israel did the same thing as they were delivered from Egypt. We all understand what that feels like because we've all had experiences in our life where we have felt the blessings of our heavenly father in our lives. And and that's sometimes what keeps us here and keeps us going back uh, in the hard times because we felt that we felt the spirit and, and the spirit speaks to us and the spirit actually converts. And so, but by the time we get to verse 24 in chapter 15, the people are murmuring again. Now, I really didn't understand the word murmur. Uh, I had always thought that murmuring was this loud and outward expression of complaining. Uh, But I looked up the word, and it said that it is a soft, indistinct sound made by a person or group speaking quietly or at a distance. So, well, that makes much more sense to me because uh, when I complain, I very rarely show my displeasure to my creator in a loud manner uh, for the blessings that I felt I deserved and haven't got. Uh, I'm not very confrontational about it, and I don't speak it out loud. It's usually done in a thought or a doubt or a question under my breath, like, why me? What have I done to deserve this? 
uh, and lately, haven't I gone through enough already? Why is it that so-and-so doesn't have any challenges at all, and I have them all? Am I doing all that you have asked? I Well, I asked the question, I am doing all that you've asked, but I still seem to have these challenges in my life. Oh, believe me, I can murmur with the very best of them. Uh, But just like always, the Lord patiently and kindly comes to the aid of the children of Israel to solve their problems. In verse 23, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah, meaning bitterness. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he had made them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Now the covenant, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is in right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, I am the Lord that healeth thee. When I read that, I, I just had thoughts of we were blessed in, in this gospel that we all uh, have. We're a covenant people. We've made promises. And, and, and one thing I do know, the Lord keeps his end of the bargain, keeps his promises. How many times have you heard in scriptures, and especially the Book of Mormon, uh, if ye will obey my commandments, you will prosper. This is a theme that has been repeated uh, throughout our church, and it's a promise to all of those uh, who are faithful. Any thoughts on chapter 15 somebody wants to share really quickly? Yeah, Ed? So... So, so one thing, the psychological significance of murmuring, in my opinion, being a sheepherder, is to, to gain, um, o- oftentimes we, we, we feel oppressed, but we're unsure if our, if our complaint is valid. And, and we don't know how to gain validity or, or knowledge of the validity of our complaint from the Lord. So it's much easier to go to other people and this is where the, sh- the idea of the sheep comes in to go to other people and say, you know, am I wrong? Am I wrong in this? And it's like, well, what does it matter? That other person necessarily won't be able to tell you whether you're wrong or right. The Lord can tell you. And that's the problem with murmuring. The problem isn't the complaint. If, if you have a complaint, by all means, take that to the Lord. And, and one thing that throughout all of the Old Testament, one that I really, really like is oftentimes the prophets themselves are very willing to take complaints to the Lord and to express grievances as if they have this personal friendship, relationship with the Lord. And and there's this dialogue, dialogue going on between them and the Lord, whereas 
they can then resolve the matter. But if all it is is murmuring, then it just it it contributes to this you know large group think that then it's like well we've decided it's right because now we're the majority we're we're a group and we're telling you this is a complaint well that doesn't mean you're right just because you have a majority or a large group or anything what what makes it right is obviously is it right and can the lord solve it and that's the real question thank you yeah i i I got a reaction as well. When I hear murmuring, I think because I know the end of the story, um, they should have been fine with it. They should have just gone along with it. But, but that's because I know the end of the story. And then I think we're in the middle of a 40-year story. And somewhere in the middle of that 40-year story, they don't know the end. They don't know that it's going to work out. They're in the wilderness. And if I put myself in the middle of a 40-year story when I don't know the end, um, I'm probably murmuring as well. I mean, it's very easy to understand. Uh, and, you know, I'm not even going to live another 40 years. If I have to be in, the, you know, in a 40-year journey, I'm, I, it's hard. I, I love that insight. I, I really do love that insight. And it's something that I haven't thought about Uh I'm sitting here reading this and thinking, how could they do these things? But you're right. They, they didn't know the end. They had no idea. And uh, all they were doing is living life like we live today and experiencing the things that we go through. We don't know our end, ultimately. I mean, it, w- what's going to happen uh, in the next few years in each of our lives. But uh, I love that. I love that perspective. Uh, in Exodus... Yeah, Go ahead. I just, I just want to bring in this um, comment from the chat that um, you know there's there's a there's you know a difference between grumbling, complaining, um, but uh, and uh, and and not just complaining, but questioning God's abilities and motives, um, and and kind of this the strength of that type of murmuring. And so, I mean, I think. Um, sometimes we can maybe be easy on ourselves. I'm thinking about <laughs> murmuring <laughs> um, and and you know trying to grapple with or deal with something, or or are we engaged in this kind of vote of no confidence? Um, um, you know, really questioning God's abilities and motives. So I think that's a great great question to to keep in mind. Absolutely, thank you. Exodus 16, and they took their journey from Elam, and the congregation of the children of Israel came into the wilderness of sin. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by our flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full for ye have brought us forth into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them saying at even 
you shall eat fresh meat, fresh, well, we know it's meat. And in the morning, ye shall be filled with bread. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And the Lord, at this time, the Lord is still very patient. He is taking them at, at a level where they were spiritually when they left Egypt and is giving them plenty of evidence that he exists and that Moses is their prophet. Rather than punishing them, I guess, for murmuring or questioning, he is giving them direct evidence that God is indeed leading them through the wilderness towards the promised land. And, and you know, I hadn't really thought about what spiritual level they were really on when they left Egypt and how this is a process. And, but aren't we all part of this process of conversion? Uh, me and my life, you know, when I've been fully converted and when I've regressed a little bit and when I've not done the things to build my testimony. And so I, I, I think we're much like them. We're all on a different path, a different place. And there's a time coming though, that uh, when the children of Israel will have been taught sufficiently and giving, given enough evidence of God's existence and they will become uh, God will hold them more accountable and punishment will start following some of this rebellion. All of this is a reminder that God is also fair and reasonable. The Lord gives them careful instructions for the gathering of manna, which provides more opportunities to learn obedience. He instructs them to gather twice as much on the day before the Sabbath so that they would begin to see the importance of keeping the Sabbath day. They were instructed to gather just enough to be used for that day, which taught them a lesson maybe in faith. They were to have faith that the Lord would provide each day. And he did so for 40 years. The Israelites have now arrived at this point in their spiritual progress where their disobedience is uh, met with immediate punishment as demonstrated by the wormy manna and the stench with, that came with it. They are now being taught, uh, albeit in the early stages of knowledge, agency, and accountability. Up to this point, the Lord has been very patient with the children of Israel who had come from a culture in Egypt that was far different than the culture of uh, what they were trying to live, a Zion society. He gave them clear evidence time after time that he was their God and that Moses was their prophet. Yet some of them, uh, just like today, continued to disobey despite clear proof that disobedience was probably unwise. I think of my own kids. I had seven children, and I thought I did a really good job of teaching them all the same. But some of my children have learned better than others, and some have chosen a different path. And uh, 
Some of them have chosen to be disobedient at certain times, and they paid the consequences for that. And so uh, lastly, you know, on this, before we, you know, I want to hear some comments from some of you. Lastly, Moses was instructed to save two quarts of that manna in a pot for future generations to see as a testimony to what the Lord had done for their ancestors. It was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, and it didn't spoil. And the children of Israel did eat manna for 40 years until they came to the land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came into the borders of the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. So the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they lived on manna for 40 years. Their lifestyle was such that they couldn't really hunt or plant crops. In essence, God was providing daily substance for them. I I think that one of God's purposes uh, was to teach them, each one of them, to look to him, to have faith in him, and to look to him for their daily source of nourishment and light. He made this a daily thing because manna couldn't be stored. They couldn't forget who was their source for the blessings because it was daily. And if you look at that, I think there's a spiritual spiritual parallel for our day. We are all in need uh, of physical substance like them. But I think the spiritual need is just as strong. The need for daily spiritual substance is required to help each one of us in our daily lives. Scripture study, prayer, meditation, pondering, all of those things may seem like small things, but when done uh, daily, like the gathering of manna, will ultimately transform us into some something that uh, is, is way bigger than and better than we ever thought we would be. Uh, any of your thoughts on chapter 16 that you'd like to share? I need glasses to read the chat, but. Uh, So there's a comment. I love the idea of the little things we need to do daily that add up to the spiritual practice that takes us closer to God. Uh, And that really fits with some of the things I'm reflecting on as you're talking Um, kind of this, this bigger, um, you know, this bigger question (laughs) I'm still, you know, ruminating on like choosing the wilderness over kind of the certainty, um, you know, what's already been established. And that's really what, you know, that people are required to do, like, you know, choosing the wilderness, seeking God, seeking revelation kind of in these, in these daily things rather than, um, you know, falling back and going back to the certainty, like the already kind of set up way of, of living and doing things that actually doesn't offer um, freedom, doesn't offer that, that closeness to God, that, that revelation. Um, Yeah. You know, there's another thought. Um, Later on, when, when um, they, 
the Lord gives instructions for the tabernacle and, and the later temple. Uh, part of that is the Holy of Holies, which is the, the symbolic representation of the presence of the Lord. And it's a perfect cube, all sides being equal. And if, that, if the presence of the Lord is that of equals, then it's interesting that throughout this, um, okay, so here in 16, Moses and Aaron point out to the people, your, your complaints aren't against us. Your complaints are against the Lord. I don't think that's an attempt by Moses to tell the people, you shouldn't be complaining. Okay. Instead, I, I understand what they're saying is, look, understand the Lord is treating us as his equals. And he can hear every conversation. So don't, don't think that, that your murmuring is going unnoticed by him. The problem is, is when you engage in that behavior, you're treating the Lord as, an, as, as someone who's not equal with you, which is the problem. If you have a complaint, take it to the Lord. Be equal with him. Own up to, up, own up to your problem. Like the Lord wants, he wants to deal with us. He wants to work with us. He wants to engage. Throughout this process of leaving Egypt, the whole idea of it is to bring the children of Israel from Egypt, which is tyranny, to the point to where they're going to enter into the presence of the Lord. That was the intention. Later on, the children of Israel refused that offer, but that was always the intention that the Lord's bringing them into his presence, uh, into his presence, inviting, saying, come, you know, let's be equals. And, and so, Darren, you had brought up a really good point that what we see here through these chapters is that this is the result when people do not have an act by faith. And, and I don't say that pointing at them. I say that at us because that's where it's relevant. Their story is not so much relevant to us to be like those dumb children of Israel. Look how unfaithful they were. But instead, it's like if you don't have faith, you would be just like them because the miracles of the, the, the ten plagues, didn't produce faith in Pharaoh. Seeing seeing the, the waters part in the Red Seas didn't produce faith in the children of Israel. Instead, they know they no sooner get out the other side before they're back to murmuring, complaining. How is this possible? Why'd you bring us here? We're all gonna die. Well, the the, the scripture's there so that you can understand that's the common condition of mankind. That's the natural disposition of all of us. So if you want to really see yourself, that's a reflection of yourself. And we need to be more like Moses, who constantly seeing and engaging the Lord, literally engaging. And that's where all of us should be. Yeah, thank I, you. I actually take I actually take a take it from a slightly different point of view than um yeah, then Edwin was just talking. Not not contrary, but but I think of this as an identity story. This is this is this is a foundational story for the children of Israel. Who are we? Um, we are the people who left Egypt. We are the people who ate manna in the wilderness. We are the people who argued with the Lord. Uh, we, this, this, and so every time I get the children of Israel in this chapter, it's, it's, 
it's defining of this people. The children of Israel are the are the people who did these things, and uh, um, this is the way we deal with God. This is the way we um, came to be. We came to be as a people who got out of Egypt and and made our way to the the promised land. In this case, uh, it'll come later. Um, uh, and I, I, I mean, I get echoes of our own, um, uh, you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints experience. I guess as a, as a, as a part of the restoration. A, a, we have a journey in the wilderness. We have a, we are, we are people who take the sacrament. I mean, you can you can make a number of parallels, but it, it when you think of it as an identity story. Um, you can see how the children of Israel come to be identified and and know who they are, and I think we can I can play that out as well into who I am. So I'm thinking about that idea of identity, and then I'm really intrigued by Edwin's comments about um, God wanting people to see their identity in particular ways and to see these equal relationships. Right. So um, so Darren had talked about how, um, you know, they're coming out of this very different culture and try that was very that was hierarchical. Right. There's people who are enslaved and people who are enslavers and, um, you know, those pharaohs and people above and below each other. And they're trying to build Zion and to be God's people. And, uh, and Darren talked about, you know, the careful instructions that they're given on just these daily practices of, of eating, um, and all of the different lessons that that we can take from that. And one of them, you know, really seems to me, uh, I was in rereading this, I was just so struck by everyone's just supposed to take what they need, what they need, what their family needs. Um, they're not supposed to hoard, they're not supposed to you know, it's not about accumulating and getting more than someone else that, that, that they're really being required to live as God's people in this, um, in this equal way, um, where they're all, they all have the same, they, they all are having to recognize that everything that they have comes from God. And, and, and nobody is, you know, getting more than somebody else. And if they do, then it just turns to rot. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, I'm really thinking about kind of the, these instructions and the lessons that come out from this and that these people are required to live this way and practice being equal with each other and, and, and in this close relationship to God for 40 years, (laughs) And then you can be, you know, my people, maybe you've learned something. Uh, anyway, that's where I'm, I'm thinking. Well, I've loved all the comments. They, they've been wonderful. Uh, as we just get to towards the end of the lesson, let's get to 17 really quickly. And I love the symbolism that's in 17. And as I read that, I, I wrote down five things uh, that I, I picked out were five truths that stuck out to me as I read 17. And, and one is throughout scripture, Christ is often referred to as the rock or our sure foundation, uh, which we're all invited to build our lives on. 
Two, Christ is the living waters that cleanses our lives, refreshes our souls, purifies us such that we can live a satisfying and productive gospel life. Three, Christ is the rock, uh, as the rock was smitten for our sins in order that we might not die spiritually. And four, in order to lead his people, the Lord's prophet must be sustained by them. And five, when we sustain the prophet, we prevail against the enemies of our spirituality. So starting in verse one, all of the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched their tent in Rephidim. And there was no water to drink. <laughs> now you can just see what's what's coming. Uh I thought at this point, though, by now, the children of Israel might have learned that a lesson that there was a power about Jehovah and that his love for them and how he was going to provide. But but maybe not so. Um, It says, wherefore, the people did chide. And I'm assuming that means complain to Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, probably a little frustrated, why chide with me? Wherefore, do ye tempt the Lord? And that was a point that Ed made a little bit earlier. It's not me. It's the Lord you're complaining and tempting. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, wherefore, Is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go before the people. Take the elders of Israel and thy rod that thou smotest the river with. Take in thy hand and go. I was struck that he said, take the elders. But then I I look back at my own Native American culture and heritage, and and I know what that elders means. It means leadership, knowledge holders, knowledge keepers, uh, influencers. It's, It's the most important people that hold the highest calling within our tribe. And now in verse 6, which is, holds much of the symbolism. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock of Horeb, symbolic of Christ as the rock or the sure foundation. And thou shalt smite the rock, which I suppose could all be so be symbolically of the fact that Christ will be smitten for our sins. And there shall be water out of it. Symbolic of living water coming from the living Christ. That the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. You know, we look at the desert or the wilderness in our scriptures, and it's sometimes referred to as a symbolism of apostasy or lacking the gospel in your life. The complaining and murmuring from the children of Israel kind of put them in double jeopardy here. First, they were in danger of literally starving to death. Secondly, their lack of faith 
and their verbal attacks against the Lord and his prophets put them in danger of losing their spirituality, a condition that is far more serious than that of physical death. Uh, I hope by now that you've noticed that there is plenty of opposition along the way as we strive to stay on this straight and narrow path. And then that statement is true for the children of Israel as it is for us today. As in as if there wasn't enough, though, going on in that physical environment, the Lord actually teaches them and brings along a guy named Amalek who wanted to fight with Israel. Uh, after choosing the man, Joshua, and his small army, uh, he led them into the battle the next day. Moses told Joshua that he would go on top of the hill with a rod in his hand. Verse 11, and it came to pass when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and when he let them down, Amalek prevailed. I want to believe that that's kind of symbolic of the fact that without leadership, without keys of authority held by a living prophet, we cannot win or prevail against our spiritual enemies. As Moses' hands became heavy, Aaron and her stayed up his hands to allow Joshua to win the battle. The symbolism here was Moses climbing the hill, which could be symbolic for the prophet being on higher ground than those who, and a little bit closer to God than his people, and the rod of God in his hands, which is symbolic of the power and authority that God uh, has to lead his people. And in the last couple of verses, Moses writes, uh, this for a memorial, he says, write it as a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I, I will utterly put our remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Moses wanted people to remember this. For he said, because of the Lord hath sworn or covenanted that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, the Lord has covenanted with us that he will help us triumph over all of, I guess you could say, the Amaleks that will come along in our life from generation to generation. And so uh, just a couple of things I want you to ponder as we, as we get done today. Um, how important is is it today to sustain our prophet and other church leaders? What if our prophet, though, doesn't share the same views or some of the beliefs that we might have? Are the leaders that we have today capable of making mistakes? Has our Heavenly Father given us personal revelation to help each one of us and our families? I think those are all questions that we can ask ourselves throughout this journey. Uh, I'm grateful for trials in my life. I'm grateful that uh, my great-great-grandfather, Sagwich, the chief of the Shoshones, had trials in his life. But I'm more grateful for the choices that he made after those trials that allowed thousands of our people to be blessed. Uh, trials make us stronger. And I just maybe want to leave you before I end up with, a, if you have a couple of comments, that the spirit 
the spirit is the confirmer and the galvanizer of our testimonies and our teacher. And if we want to be truly converted, uh, we do that with the spirit of the Lord. So any other comments before we end today uh, on those last chapters? Maybe we'll let, maybe we'll go ahead and officially close with that and then um, have a little bit of conversation uh, after that. Um, Thank you for a wonderful lesson. And thank you for everyone who uh, contributed in two weeks on Sunday, April 24th at 1130 a.m. Mountain Time and more importantly, 1.30 p.m. Easter Time, where our teacher will be. We'll continue our study of the Hebrew Bible with Maria Manzos. Um, Linda Hoffman Kimball will offer our closing prayer today. Our great God, our kind Father, our beloved God. We thank thee that thou hast preserved brother Darren for us and helped him through the trials of his health. We're grateful for the juicy and interesting conversation we've had and heard today about the deliverance of the children of of Israel and the desolation that they faced when they were delivered. We ask that thou will bless us to understand these concepts and probe them and find applications in our own life that our spiritual selves may be enriched and nourished by the manna of thy good word. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.